Thanks, Dave. I'm going to grab my coffee and my Bible because I have had zero to eat and three cups of coffee, so you're in for it. <laughs> I don't like to eat on Sunday mornings. It really, it really slows me down. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Grace Community. It's good to have you here this morning. I pray that God has already spoken to each of your hearts uh, during worship. Now, this is the last Sunday of the month. Many of you are probably aware of that. But on the last Sunday of the month, we have our upper elementary students with us in church to receive communion. I love that we have a church that invites our kids with us into the experience of worshiping God. This is actually the only the second time that we've done this. Uh, but, we, I, but I really want to just take a second and explain to you why it is that we want to integrate at least once a month our upper elementary students into what we do here at church. The first reason we want to do this is that we value our kids, which is good, right? Uh, we think they are a part of the body of Christ. And we want to shepherd the responsibility of raising them in the faith gradually over time in age-appropriate ways. We want to introduce them into the larger community so that, uh, so that they believe and know that they are welcomed here. They are welcomed in this place. Uh, and that Jesus loves them and that they are a vital part of what we do as a church. Kids are. That's obviously uh, a big reason why we did child dedication today, right? To, to, that's why we do it on Sunday mornings like we do, because it's such a vital part of what we do. So that's the first reason. Then the second reason we're making this shift to integrating some of our upper elementary students into our service once a month is that we really want to come, come beside parents, come alongside parents and support you as you raise your children in the faith. We want to help create an environment in this place where you can explain to your kids why we sing songs to Jesus, why we lift our hands in worship, why we read our Bibles, uh, why we receive communion together. I know many of you are already doing this. It's not a new thing to you, but... Uh, before our kids are in our service full time, we want to give them little glimpses, little windows of the life of the community. And so we thought that one of the best ways to do that, to gradually fold them into the life of our church, is to invite them into our service once a week. So that is why we do that. You know, one of the things that literally melts my heart as a parent is when I see uh, parents helping kids receive communion. It's something I do for my son. Uh, He's not in here, but it was, it was something I do for my son from time to time. Uh, and praying with them and explaining what's going on. It's just this beautiful formative practice that for thousands and thousands of years, Christians have been instructing their children. In. And, to th and the thought that we get to be a, just one more generation, one more link in the chain of the story of Jesus that moves down through the generations is a beautiful thing. And it's something that we want to keep in front of our hearts and in front of our minds and in front of our eyes on Sunday mornings. And so that's why we care about keeping our, our kids in worship with us. That's why we care about um, involving our kids in the, just the life of the church because we want to see that happen and we want to steward that responsibility well. So that is that. All right? All right. So uh, we want to see the kingdom of God woven into the very fabric of our lives, don't we? We prayed it today. Lord, have your way. Uh, your, have your, let's, your kingdom come and your will be done. And as part of that desire, uh, we want to we grow in what it means to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus well in the world. 
And that is why we have this series that we're, we are calling Follow, which is just all about following Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like to follow Jesus, what following, what the impact that following Jesus has on each of our lives. And the truth of the matter is that uh, the, the, over the last three weeks, we have been exploring passages of Scripture that give us instruction about what it means to follow Jesus. We've taken snapshots into the lives of disciples, and we've said, what, what was their followership of Jesus like? What did it look like? What did it entail? And we are trying to glean from those passages of Scripture, how do we follow Jesus well in our day? But today, we are jumping into a passage of Scripture that if I'm being honest with you, is strange, right? It's strange. If you're unfamiliar with this passage, you may be thinking that I'm trying to play a Halloween joke on you. I'm not. Uh, that's not what I'm doing. This is actually in the scriptures. It is, I guess, seasonally appropriate, but it is actually in the scriptures. And if you felt a little strange hearing that passage read aloud today, you are not alone because a large number of Jesus' disciples thought it was strange too. They thought it was so strange that, it, that they ended, actually ended up abandoning Jesus, of leaving him. This is a story, the story we read today, about how possibly hundreds of people walk away from Jesus, leave him. We're used to stories about how and why people follow Jesus, aren't we? But the Gospels also record stories, lots of stories actually, of people who deny, abandon, reject, and even crucify Jesus. Jesus did not have a 100% approval rating. He just didn't. Not in his day and not in ours. The Gospels often talk about the multitude or the large crowd of people that followed him as he went from town to town and place to place teaching about the kingdom of God. But those who walk away in this passage are not the multitude, actually. They are the committed. The passage calls them disciples, those who have left home and family to follow Jesus. Sometimes when we read the, read the Gospels, we think that Jesus only traveled with a, like a small band of people, maybe the 12 disciples and like one or two other people. But in actuality, the Gospels tell us that Jesus traveled with a, at different times in his ministry, traveled with an incredibly large group of people. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, G, we have a story of Jesus sending out the 72 to go and preach out around Galilee. And then at the, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension in Acts, at the first chapter of Acts, first two chapters of Acts, we read that 120 people were following Jesus at that time when the Holy Spirit descended on the church there in the upper room. So Jesus often traveled with a fairly large entourage. He had a lot of people following him. But there is something in this teaching that he gives today that is so hard or so confusing even that those who follow him, a large number of those who follow him, decide to not do that anymore. They actually leave him. And we don't know exactly how many left, but the text does kind of give us a clue at that it was most of them. Because when Jesus turns to the disciples and asks the questions he asks them, it does feel like they might have been the only ones left. Now, the reason I think this is important, the reason it's important that we, we look at this passage of Scripture today is because if you have followed Jesus for any length of time in your life, any length of time, whether it be two weeks or three months or t 10 years or 20 years or 80 years, I'm not sure. If you, ha you, have, if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, 
you have felt this same temptation as well. Right? We don't always talk about it in church. The, the Christian life is not this thing that always moves up and to the left. It's not this thing that, uh, where we avoid difficult circumstances and we avoid doubt and we avoid pain and we avoid difficulty. We all have seasons in our lives where we feel like God is just not with us. We all feel dry, like we can't sense his presence or hear his voice. Maybe you're in this place today, and at some point in your life, you've ran up against intellectual questions about uh, the reliability of the Christian faith or about the reliability of the Christian scriptures, and that caused you to question and to doubt and sent you on a little bit of a journey. I don't know what your particular struggle is in this place this morning or has been, but what I do know is that it is impossible impossible to go through life as a follower of Jesus without running into these times where we doubt, where we have questions, where difficulties threaten to take us away from Jesus. And when, and when we lie to people in the church, which we sometimes do, and tell them that following Jesus is always great and always easy or always kind of doubt-free, we actually make it easier in the long run for people to walk away because when things get hard, they go, oh, I this isn't what I signed up for, and they walk away. Many of us may not even be aware of it, but we have in our own hearts and in our own minds the subtle belief that if I just pray enough, if I just read the scriptures enough, if I just avoid sin enough, then everything is going to be okay. Then my faith in Jesus won't flag. I won't encounter doubts and difficulties. But it just turns out to be not true. It just turns out to be not true. But, but, there is a way through those problems. There is a path through the difficulties, through the questions, through the doubting that we can kind of confidently walk into and through questions in tough situations with a faith that can endure the dark night of the soul and depression and broken relationships and loss of loved ones. And we can do this because we, we develop over time a faith that is not built on emotionalism or false promises or flimsy and insecure doctrine, but rather is kind of deeply grounded in the soil of real life and real experience and connected not only to my feelings, but to a kind of robust and realistic interpretation of scripture. And so if you are in this place this morning and you are in the midst of one of these seasons, these seasons of questioning and doubting, the season where it seems like the questions outweigh the answers, where the voice of doubt feels louder than the voice of faith, I have good news for you. I have good news for you. You are a normal human being. <laughs> you are not weird. Everyone has doubts. Everyone experiences questions. Everyone has experienced the temptation to hang it up and walk away from Jesus. Everyone has. We all do. And we need to talk about it, actually. We need to have conversations about it. Because sometimes in the church, we are tempted to put on a happy face, right? We are uh, to not let people see the inside of our experience of following Jesus, to just kind of hide the fact that we are going through one of those times because of shame or guilt or just out and out fear. And it is my experience that when we hide those things, that's when we're actually in the most danger. 
But when we stay connected to Christ's body, to the church, when we keep talking through the dark times, we find out that we come out the other side and our faith is all the stronger for it. Jesus' little brother, a guy named James, is writing to the church in uh, one of the letters in the New Testament, and he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So if Jesus' own brother, someone who knew him as a kid and saw him after the resurrection, could not escape trials of many kinds, neither can we. We can't escape them. And so we need to explore this side of things and ask these questions this morning. So here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bibles, you can take those out and flip open to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is probably one on the seat in front of you. It will be helpful for you to open a physical Bible because your phone won't be able to look at all of the material we're actually looking at this morning because... Uh, John's gospel, specifically John's, uh, the chapter 6 of John's gospel, needs to be read as one coherent unit. John wrote chapter 6 of his, of his gospel in order to be understood as a unified whole. It's like a vignette taken out of the middle of John's gospel. And so this morning, I'm going to try and do something that is, well, really unwise, to be honest with you. I'm going to try and cover an entire chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes. So... We'll see what we can do. Pray for me, right? Pray for me. Uh, So if you have your Bible, like I said, it's probably uh, important for you to keep that Bible open and follow along. If if what we cover here today sparks something in you, keep in mind that this week our home groups will be going over this material. So uh, this isn't your only shot. Uh, to discuss what we're talking about today, you can you can find a home group, and uh, the in the home groups will dive in a little deeper to this material and ask some more questions. All right, all right, here we go. John begins chapter six of his gospel by recounting the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand. Who's familiar with the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand? You can just raise your hand. This is wonderful. Thank you very much. If you're familiar with any of Jesus' miracles in the gospel, you're probably familiar with this one, right? This is where there are multitudes of people, they're coming to hear Jesus speak, and Jesus wants to feed them. But nobody has anything to eat. Because apparently nobody nobody had a mom (laughs) to help them plan ahead in any way, shape, or form. And so the disciples go and they find a, a boy who has a couple loaves and a couple fish, and, G- and Jesus miraculously multiplies this little amount of food so that everyone can eat. It's a pretty incredible miracle. And this begins a theme that John carries throughout the rest of his, his, the ch- chapter 6 of his gospel that explores through the whole chapter this idea or this theme of eating. Of eating. So what you need to know is that everything, every story through chapter 6 of John's gospel kind of explores this idea or uses this analogy of eating as a way of talking about spiritual realities. Food and eating become the way that we kind of make sense of this whole chapter. Now, I thought about calling this sermon, Look Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, But, wow, more people got that reference than I thought. Uh, it's a movie, guys. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie. Uh, but uh, it seemed a little too on the nose, to be honest with you. So uh, we, we went away from that. Uh, but 
what you need to know from this passage is that in the Hebrew mind, in the mind of these Jewish people who were present for the, for the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, God providing food for his people became a ve- was a very significant idea. It was actually a kind of religious idea that comes from the Old Testament. One of the stories that really was really stuck in the minds of first century Jewish people was the story of Yahweh in cooperation with Moses providing manna for the people of Israel when they were in the desert after God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. This was a really important story for them, and it's one they thought about a lot. In the Hebrew mind, the miracle of God's provision of manna uh, became symbolic for God spiritually feeding and sustaining his people, right? So God is a God who cares about his people, and God will feed his people. He will sustain his people both spiritually and physically. And in Jesus' day, Jewish people came to believe that when the Messiah came, the one who was God's special or anointed ruler or king, when the Messiah came, he would feed them practically, that he would actually feed them. And that he would feed them practically, but he would also feed them spiritually in a similar way, that in the same way that Moses partnered with God to feed and sustain the Israelites on their long journey through the wilderness. Uh, one rabbinic writing, what's often called a midrash, which is just a commentary on the Old Testament, says it this way. As the former redeemer, Moses, caused manna to fall, so the latter redeemer, that is the Messiah, will cause manna to descend. Not depend, descend. That's a misspelling on my part. So the people believed that the, the, people believed that the Messiah, when he came, would do miraculous Uh, things kind of like the miracles that happened in the Old Testament. And one of the things they thought would happen is that the Messiah would do a a food miracle, basically. That the Messiah would do a food miracle. And this is why, after Jesus performs this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, at the end of that story, it says this. After the people saw the sign, notice it says sign, not just miracle, Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who came into the world. You see the connection they're making there. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, right? We see the, the messianic or the idea of a king coming. He, knowing this, he withdrew again to the mountains by himself, right? So Jesus doesn't respond to this miracle the way his audience wants him to respond, does, does he? They try to make him king by force because they think he's this messiah, he's this Uh, He's this redeemer who's going to come and deliver them. And Jesus doesn't respond the way you think he should. He is not excited about the people's response. And we'll see why in just a moment he's not excited. But he withdraws to the mountains by himself. He runs away, basically. And the disciples take a boat and they go across the, and they go across the lake. Now Jesus was apparently going to walk around the lake while the disciples went across and he was going to meet them. But in the middle of chapter 6, you see that Jesus does this little tiny miracle of walking on water that we don't have time to cover today, but we'll hop over it. But we get the answer to why he basically ran away from the people who wanted to make him king by force a few verses later in chapter 6. Specifically, hop down to verse 26 of chapter 6, and you'll see Jesus say this. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus essentially says here, you are not looking for me. You are looking for the spoils. You are looking for the benefits of what I can do for you. You, uh, and I want to say that what Jesus addresses here is what I'm calling this morning a kind of immature faith, a kind of immature discipleship. A mentality that follow, uh, a mentality that oftentimes people who follow Jesus have, where we follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, for the wrong reasons. And can I just submit to you today that the most immature and unstable version of faith in Jesus is the form that says, I want to follow Jesus because of what I think he can do for me. I want to follow Jesus because he makes me feel good or because if I follow him, I may get to heaven. Or worse yet, if I follow him or follow his rules, maybe he will help me get into that relationship that I really want to be in. Or to get that job, or to avoid that difficult situation. This is a kind of immature disciple. And uh, the Bible seems, and Jesus seems to address those people in this passage by saying, no, no, that's not what it's about. And I just want to say right from the outset that this isn't a binary where there are immature disciples and there are mature disciples. I think in some real sense, all of us have an element of, of the immature disciple in our faith. All of us have this innate desire in our hearts to get things that advance our position, that advance our desires, that support and buttress what we want. And very often in the Christian life, in, in our followership of Jesus, this takes the form of what I like to call magical thinking. Magical thinking. See, we're very Halloween-themed today, aren't we? Magic is the thing where if I just do the formula right, if I just, if I just do, the, the, do the five steps that I need to do, if I just pray for 10 hours and then fast the right amount of time, and then don't do the certain things and do the right things, that eventually, if I get the formula right, things just turn out the way I want them to turn out, right? And we all have an element of this kind of magical thinking in our followership of Jesus. And Jesus seems to reject this type of faith wholesale, right? And he spends the rest of the chapter, basically 30 verses, trying to show the, the crowd that the reward for following Jesus is not miracles, it's not signs. It's not miraculous heaven bread. It's not fish that replicate, right? This isn't what the reward is. Jesus is trying to tell his followers that the reward for following him is being with him. It's being with him. The reward for following Jesus is experiencing the very life and love of God. It is its own reward. And the analogy he uses to try to help them understand what it really looks like to be with him and to take part in what he is doing to share in his life is to eat him, which is strange. Jesus says again in verse 53, Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whether you're, whatever, uh, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up uh, at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me 
and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Notice he again makes the connection between the Old Testament and the, 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 and the Israelites receiving manna in the desert. He's making that connection again to bring it up in their minds. But Jesus introduces an idea here of eating his body and drinking his blood. And this is just the last straw for these disciples who were following him. He goes on this long conversation with them about why they were following him and what they wanted to get out of it. And when he gives them this analogy, it's kind of over. Not only is he not giving them the signs they want, not only is he, is he kind of resisting the, their desire to make him the type of king that they want him to be by going into the desert, but now he is saying crazy stuff, right? Stuff that makes no sense to them, and they are out. They are out. And on hearing it, many of, and this is what the passage says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, the interesting thing to me about this passage is that uh, when we hear this, uh, uh, when we hear this, many of the disciples that we are, that Jesus is speaking to, seem to walk away from Jesus, not just because he gives them an analogy that they think is a little strange. They walk away from Jesus in some sense because... They're not getting what they want, ultimately. They're not getting what they think they're supposed to receive, and so they walk away from Jesus. And you know what? Jesus lets them go, doesn't he? Which is strange. He doesn't run after these followers. I think this implies here that Jesus is not about twisting people's arms or, co or coercing behavior or manipulating the will in order to get people to follow him. But he turns to the 12 disciples after this large group of disciples, possibly hundreds of people have left them. He turns to his closest companions and he says in verse uh, 67, do you want to leave too? Do you want to leave too? There's an there's a air of vulnerability in that, isn't there, from Jesus? And Peter responds, as Peter often does, in verse uh, 68. Peter, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom, shall, to, uh, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, the immature believers, the immature disciples who abandoned Jesus were those who came to him because... Uh, of what he could do for them. And then Peter, the leader of the, uh, one of Jesus' first disciples, and really the leader of the 12 disciples, falls into a different category, where this group of people who abandoned Jesus, I would kind of refer to as immature disciples. I would put the Peter and the other disciples into a category that we called mature, the mature disciple. The mature disciple. Now notice here, that just because uh, Peter, you could put him in a category that is the mature disciple, uh, does not mean that Peter is not confused, discouraged, and doubting. Do you notice that? The passage says that Jesus hears his disciples grumbling and talking amongst themselves. Peter is flummoxed by this teaching in the same way that the crowds were. 
And the, and the disciples seem to agree with Peter on this. But Peter's words are so powerful, aren't they? Where would we go? What would we do? You know, there are times in life when we are really searching, when we are really kind of feeling our way through what feels like the dark. And the words, where would we go, can kind of ring out for us. You know, there, there was a time in my life when I was really, really searching. I was kind of turning over the rocks of what I believed in a, in a really deliberate and kind of painful way. And in those seasons of searching and in those seasons of struggling and in those seasons of exploration, sometimes our faith doesn't feel very strong, does it? It doesn't feel very victorious. You know, I have this really distinct memory of a time when I was in seminary. And uh, I, was, I went to this little um, indoor cafe to do some reading. And there was a thick blanket of snow falling over uh, a Minnesotan lake. It was kind of, a, it was a really beautiful morning. And as I was reading a big thick book on systematic theology, I remember having this internal dialogue sitting next to the window watching the snow fall. And I, had, I was in this season full of doubts, full of questions, full of concerns, wondering if I believed this stuff at all. Wonder if, wondering if I believe this stuff to actually go into the ministry. Wondering if I should continue to spend money on a seminary education that I was unsure that I was ever really going to use. And as I sat there, I simply, in my mind's eye, began to think about Jesus. Just me there by my stuff on a snowy January morning. I began to think about the person of Jesus. And as I did this, tears began to well up in my eyes. And a love for Jesus began to slowly raise in my chest and warm me. And I remember thinking in that moment, how could I ever do anything else? How could I ever do anything else? And sometimes in our most unsteady moments, that's good enough. That's good enough. It does, it does not always seem like a strong or victorious faith, but there is a maturity in knowing that the trials will come, the doubts will happen, that the struggles can be endured. And what we don't need in those moments is a kind of manufactured, unrealistic faith. We need only to rest in the knowledge and love of the person of Jesus. Pastor Greg Boyd says it this way. He says, if we understand it in biblical terms, faith isn't primarily about our beliefs as if God were an academic who was, obsessed, uh, who, was, who was obsessive about whether you arrived at the right intellectual conclusions. Even less is faith about engaging in psychological gimmick, gimmickry as you try to suppress doubt to convince yourself your beliefs are right once... Uh, our, your beliefs are the right ones so that you can feel accepted, worthwhile, and secure before God. Rather, faith is about trusting in the beautiful character of Christ, about being transformed from the inside by the power of his unending love, and about learning how to live in the power of the Spirit as a trustworthy partner who increasingly reflects his love and his will on earth as it is in heaven. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This is what I think it's about. 
And if you're in this place this morning and you are struggling with doubt, you are struggling with questions, I have good news for you. It's just for a time. And as you connect yourself to the reality of Christ, as you trust his character and allow yourself to be transformed, even if it feels dark, even if the doubts feel larger than the answers, you can walk through that. And on the backside of that struggle is a kind of strength, is a kind of hope, is a kind of light. And this morning, as we conclude, as we prepare to come to the table of communion, I just want to pray for us. I just want to pray for maybe those of you who are struggling this morning, who you feel like maybe in some way in your heart you feel a little bit like one of those disciples who's tempted to walk away from Jesus. You feel your faith is a little less sturdy than it once was. I want to pray for you this morning that the Spirit of God would come to you, that he would assure you of his love for you, and that he would carry you through this time with his grace. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this place this morning, and if the band could come up as well, if you're in this place this morning, and you're going through one of those seasons of doubt, you're going through one of those seasons of struggle, you're enduring the questions that will inevitably come in faith, I just want to pray for you. But I do want to pray with some knowledge. So if you're going through one of those seasons, if you could just raise a hand and just say, symbolically saying, Pastor, I'm going through one of those times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you. And we thank you that you are a faithful God. One who has promised to be with us in, the through, in and through the storms of life. And we pray uh, specifically for those in this place today who feel like they might be struggling, who feel like they might be wandering, who feel as though they have some doubts and some questions in this place this morning. We pray that your love, your compassion, and the Spirit of God would be a present, an ever-present reminder to them of your love and of your goodness and of your grace. We pray that they would feel in this moment the presence of Jesus with them. And they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you love them, that you love them. We thank you, Jesus, for this morning. We thank you that you don't ask us to uh, manufacture faith, but rather you uh, meet us where we are at and you lead us into our future with grace and with goodness and with peace. And we pray it all right now in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen and amen. All right, would you stand with me? It seems fitting on this last Sunday of the month when we, are, uh, when we read a passage about eating Christ's body and drinking his blood that we come to the table together as a sign of our dependence on Jesus for our very lives. You know... Uh, Jesus institutes this practice of coming to the table, of communion, as a means of reminding his people, both of his sacrificial death and his love for us, but of his presence with us. That's what communion is. It is simply a physical reminder that Christ is present with us, that he hasn't left us abandoned, that he hasn't left us alone, but rather that he is near.
And so as we receive communion together, we remember his death, we proclaim his coming, and we are assured of his closeness, of his closeness. Paul teaching the Corinthians uh, this very fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, God, we commit our lives to you. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us and what you are continuing to do for us as we follow you in this world. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your death and sacrifice. And it is in your name that we pray all this. Amen and amen. Now, at Grace Community, we practice an open communion, which means that you don't need to be a member of our church to receive with us. All we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. Now, we, uh, we invite you to come up uh, to receive the elements, and you can, t- you can receive the elements at the table, or you can take them back to your seat for a, mo- uh, for a moment of prayer and reflection, but you can receive the elements uh, whenever you would like. All right?